We come now to the fount of grace, the preaching of God's word. If you would, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And if you would, please stand with me. We do that together invisibly to express our reverence for God's written word. For the grass will wither, flowers will fade away, but the word of the living God endures forever. His people, therefore, in the light of these things, strive to hear and to heed God's word faithfully together. And this morning we hear God's word from Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. This is God's word. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what Joel, excuse me, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, 
And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. But every day we're mindful of how much we need your help. Certainly, as we come into your presence, not simply to praise, but even to receive. And we ask now that the same spirit that inspired this word and preserved this word would bless the reading and especially the preaching of the word of God, that the people of God would be built up, that sinners would be converted to saints. All this for your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. I know that there are at least a handful of R.C. Sproul fans around the room this morning. And if you are one of those, you are in good company. You may not know that his favorite author was Herman Melville, and that behind his desk where he sat there at St. Andrew's headquarters of Ligonier's is a picture of a very large well, the well that you learn about in the book The Heart of the Sea, which becomes later uh, Moby Dick. And arguably, one of the very best quotes I've ever heard about preaching actually comes from that book, from Herman Melville's Moby Dick. This is the quote. What could be more full of meaning? For the pulpit is ever this earth's foremost part. All the rest comes in its rear. The pulpit leads the world. From thence it is that the storm of God's quick wrath is first described, and the bow must bear the earliest brunt. From there it is, the god of breezes, foul or fair, is first invoked for favorable winds. Yes, the world's a ship on its passage out and not a voyage complete. And the pulpit is its prow. The pulpit leads the world. Today we look at Acts chapter 2 and what is arguably the first of 15 sermons that you'll see in this book. And one of the things that we see and will continue to see is that it's through the preaching of the Word of God that the Holy Spirit turns the world upside down. Melville was right. The pulpit leads the world. And we're going to look at our text through the points that you have in your outline, beginning with first reflecting on the relationship between Jesus and this new preacher named Peter. So but in the beginning here, what I do not want to do is uh, jump into the content of Peter's sermon with, with skipping Peter himself. In other words, we must not skip the question, what happened to Peter? What happened to this man who is now preaching the first recorded sermon in the book of Acts? If you take a slight zoom out approach, <clears throat> it was only about six weeks ago that Peter was a stammering and stumbling disciple. Don't forget the scene in the courtyard. It was not that long ago when Jesus was arrested. It was this very same Peter that denied Jesus, not simply one time, but three. So emphatic was his denial that he began to yell and to curse, climactically screaming out the words, I do not know him. Then all at once, a rooster crowed as though punctuating Peter's denial. And at that moment, Peter was pierced. The final way that he is described is remarkably fitting like another man described in the Bible, he ran away from the presence of God, virtually naked, into the cold, dark night. Peter, running from God. Peter, running from the truth. But Peter, fast as he might be able to run, <clears throat> was outrun or overtaken by someone else who was God. It is God who outran Peter, 
It is God who overtook Peter and caught him. And so we come to another very important scene in Peter's life leading up to this day of his preaching, and it's Peter by the sea. It was at the sea where Peter first met Jesus. Peter, as you know, was a fisherman, and on that day he was fishing, but so also was Jesus. Peter was a fisherman, but Jesus was a fisher of men. And Jesus caught Peter. Though Peter, in a sense, floundered his way back into the darkness here on this day by the sea, by the light of the sea on that day, Jesus caught Peter once more, and this time restored him and kept him. The blessings of forgiveness come to Peter. Peter had denied Jesus and broken his promises, but Jesus would never deny Peter nor break any of his promises to him. Satan, we were told by Jesus, asked for Peter. Let me have him. Let me have my way with him. Let me sift him like wheat. But Jesus said no. Jesus gave his life to save Peter's life. Now Jesus once more forgives Jesus here on the seashore. Now Jesus once more demonstrates it is his love for Peter that is greater than Peter's love for him. But when Jesus restores Peter, and this is very important, he doesn't simply restore him in a general sense. He restores him in a particular sense, and he gives to Peter a mission, a preview in these words, feed my sheep. So the question comes, Peter now restored on the other side of his failure. Peter now restored once more at the side of the sea, becoming on this day a fisher of men and a feeder of sheep. With what food will Peter feed the people of God? How will he feed Christ's sheep? And the answer is with the word of God, the preaching of the word of God. Now back to our scene. The Spirit of God has come. Pentecost has arrived that day of first fruits and harvest, as we noticed last week, the feast of all feasts among Israel. Now the Spirit of God is being poured out, at almost like rain or water falling down from heaven. Jesus has ascended and is giving gifts to men, bestowing gifts upon men, and then making those gifts to men for the sake of the church. The gift of the Spirit is arguably the greatest gift that Jesus will give to his people. But the gift of the Spirit comes with clear intention to proclaim the name of the resurrected Christ. With the coming of the Spirit, Peter now, that cowering lamb, has become as bold as a lion. And think of the sweet irony that it is. The very same lips that only six weeks ago cursed Jesus and shouted his denial now exalts Jesus and proclaims him boldly, the same lips. This is what a heart touched by the grace of God can do. This is what a heart touched by the grace of God might even long to do, to lift up the great name of the one who saves great sinners. So if you're wondering, as you ought to be, what happened to Peter that makes the cowering lamb now a boldly proclaiming lion, the answer is, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what happened to Peter. Never again will that rooster crow at the end of Peter's denial. 
Never again will Peter run away into the darkness, naked and ashamed, running not only from God, but even from the truth. From now on, he will walk in the light, and he will proclaim, if I can say it this way, proclaim the light and even bring the heat. This is, by the way, the way Puritans would often talk about preaching. Light and heat. Light on the text and heat on the heart. Peter's sermon today is full of both. So what does he have to say? That'll take us to our second point. Jesus and the prophets, particularly Joel and David. Well, the first thing that Peter does is to set the record straight. You're allowed to kind of laugh or lighten up just a little bit here uh, because the preceding verse in the preceding section makes a kind of comical accusation against the apostles and the disciples uh, where it says, uh, these men are all drunk. <laughs> and the first thing that does is, Peter does is set the record straight. No, we're not drunk. The accusation is made of about 150, 120 people, men and women, the disciples that were all gathered together, now coming down and proclaiming uh, in these known tongues to all the people from different nations. It's not only 120 people, but it's 9 o'clock in the morning, Peter says. It's also a holy feast day in Israel, which people would be obligated to a manner of holiness that would preclude drinking. So Peter's point is, the accusation is a bit ridiculous. They are not drunk at 9 a.m. on the morning of Pentecost, but they are full of the Holy Spirit rather than new wine. What Peter does next is remarkable. The connection made between Joel 2 and, and Acts 2 is just, it's just fantastic. He makes clear that what Joel prophesied and talked about in Joel chapter 2 regarding the last days and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, that that is happening now, uh, right now on this day of Pentecost. Derek Thomas puts it this way, uh, what you are seeing now, this is that. This that you're witnessing on the day of Pentecost is that which Joel had spoken about. But what Joel speaks about is not the coming of the Spirit, but what looks like the end of the world, the last day. Joel promised an outpouring of the Spirit. Joel promised, excuse me, Jesus promised that not long from now you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. As a very brief aside here, not a major point, but one that's at least curious and worth observing. Uh, this is one of many texts, the connection between Joel 2 and Acts 2, that helps us understand why when we perform baptisms, we pour rather than dunk. Because Joel promised a pouring out of the Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes, as Jesus said. And what did Jesus say? Not long from now, you will be baptized with the Spirit. And when the Spirit comes, they are not immersed. But when the Spirit comes, it is poured out. They are baptized in the Spirit. And what is the effect of this when the Spirit comes? But all flesh shall become recipients, not just the Jews. All flesh shall become recipients of the Holy Spirit. And so here you see exactly what Joel promised. Jews and Gentiles being ministered to by the Holy Spirit. Jews and Gentiles at the same time hearing the word of God together as the Spirit comes upon them. And the rest of Joel 2 is fulfilled. Sons and daughters, young men and old, male and female servants are all affected by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's a description of the 120 people that were gathered together of varying ethnic and economic diversity. 
wonders in heaven and signs on earth. That's exactly what they see on the day of Pentecost. And again, very importantly, this is a preview of the end of all things, but is also the beginning of the end. From this point forward, capture this, from this point forward, we are in what scripture calls the last days, the beginning of the end with the ascension of Jesus up into heaven and the sending now of the Holy Spirit, we are in the last days. What happens next? Very important question. Way too much time and ink have been wasted speculating on this subject. But what happens next is the coming of the consummate kingdom. And if you're wondering how long these last days are going to last, I want to give you a very precise answer I have no idea, and neither do you. And anyone who tells you that they know exactly when Jesus is coming back uh, to give you good pastoral advice, run away screaming. Jesus didn't come back in 1994, as one author argued, and many people believed, and actually got shipwrecked in their faith. It was a horrible thing. Any attempt at date setting is virtually forbidden by the Bible. You won't figure it out by reading the newspaper or watching foreign events. But there's one thing that you do need to know for certain, and that is this. Jesus is coming, and he's coming soon. Peter's turn takes, sermon takes a little bit of a turn in verse 22. The men to whom he is speaking, he now begins walking them to the cross. This is where every sermon should go. This is where Peter's first sermon does go. He begins walking them to the cross And he does so by describing Jesus with what would be a less than affectionate term. Men of Israel hear these words, and then he calls Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. Why is that a less than affectionate term? Because Nazareth was no great place. Could anything good come out of Nazareth? It was once said regarding Jesus. The very name Nazareth was an offense to many of the Jews. But Peter's point is that Jesus is not only the one who came, he came in a posture of humility. Uh, He was not what they were expecting in their Messiah and their King. And nonetheless, God attested to him by signs and wonders. And notice how Peter points out, as you know, a very bold statement. There was no denial that signs and wonders had been accomplished by Jesus. Many, even unbelieving Jews, would attest to the signs and wonders that were accomplished by Jesus. But this Jesus of Nazareth, who accomplished all these signs and wonders, was predestined by the foreknowledge and certain plan of God to go to the cross. This is one of those places that can make your head spin. You could take a week-long trip and come back without having this fully and utterly resolved. It's easy to say that Jesus was crucified by wicked men, but when we say God predestined this as a part of his sovereign plan, it's over my head, a remarkable statement. God had predestined that Jesus should go to the cross. This was not a plan B, as some very poor theologians have suggested. Jesus came into the world and offered the kingdom, and when they didn't want it, he decided he'd go to the cross instead. That's absolutely ridiculous. This is the plan of God. This is God's intention all the way from the beginning and even before the beginning of time itself. And even though it was the plan of God, Peter says, it is you who have crucified him. It is you who are guilty. Notice here, and very importantly, the sovereignty of God does not excuse the sin of man. God may be sovereign, but man is responsible 
for what man does. To say it differently, God's sovereignty does not negate man's responsibility. In fact, it establishes it. It establishes man's responsibility. Notice even the role that the Roman soldiers played does not excuse the Jews who shouted out over and over, crucify him. Peter's point is, you are red-handed and guilty. But God had more to the plan than simply that Jesus should go to the cross and die. And so Peter gets to the point that he really, I believe, is aiming at in verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is the point. The resurrection is the apex of the sermon. Peter leans on Psalm 16 in order to make this point. And one of our sort of interns did a fantastic job with the text Sunday evening. So much so I don't have very many things to say. Except for a few. One thing that must be underscored from Psalm 16 is that David speaks of the psalm in the psalm of one who would not rest in the grave. But Peter capitalizes on this in a remarkable way. David speaks of a righteous man, a blessed man, whom God would rescue from the pit. But David refers to this man as his own Lord. And this is Peter's point, well captured in verse 29, that David was not speaking of himself, but ultimately he was speaking of Jesus Christ, the Holy One of Israel, which was a nickname for the expected Messiah. The Messiah of Israel is the Lord of David. David's Savior is David's Lord. But, Peter says, to be clear, we know that David is speaking of someone else because the psalm promised that God would not leave his righteous one, his holy one, in the grave, and David is buried right over there. You can walk to where his body is. David is in the ground. His tomb is nearby. Jesus, however, has been raised from the dead. He is in heaven. His body cannot be found on earth because his body has been raised and seated in heaven. And in heaven, he not only reigns, he has inaugurated his kingdom. And one thing the Jews certainly understood about the coming of the kingdom of God is that it implied the enemies of God would be put down. What Peter is saying is, you have become God's enemy. You have become the object of God's wrath. Verse 35, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the problem. The Jews to whom Peter now proclaims his first sermon are those who have crucified the Lord Jesus. The one you crucified is now Lord and Messiah, Peter says. The resurrection was Jesus' victory, not simply over sin, over sickness, and Satan. It was his victory over them. Even over them. A victory that displays the power of God. A victory that stamps the presence of the Spirit of God and inaugurates the coming of the kingdom of God without measure. When Jesus said, beloved, that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it, I think we often misunderstand what that verse means. It's not as though hell is attacking the church and we're going to be able to hold out like those in Helm's Deep that we'll make it through the night. That's not what the verse is saying. It's not that the church is on the defense. It's that the church is on the offense and the gates of hell will not be able to withstand the march of the resurrected Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, whom you crucified. 
And this brings us then to a third but very important point. What then shall we do? If Jesus is King and Lord and his victory march has begun. Verse 37, love this phrase. When they heard these words, they were cut to the heart. What does the word of God do? It, it pierces farther than the hand can go. It wiggles its way surgically into the heart, Hebrews, uh, going beyond bone and deep into the marrow of the heart, if you will. Uh, this is what preaching does, despite the obvious frailties of the preacher, whether it's Peter or your pastor. Nonetheless, this is what preaching does. It's what the Word of God does. It cuts to the heart. It is surgical. It is invasive. It is confrontational. It is transforming. It is exactly what the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, and it does. It convinces, and it converts sinners. And then it builds up the saints in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. When these brothers, to whom Peter is preaching, hear all of this about Jesus and their unambiguous guilt, they say, brothers, what shall we do? What a great question. Do you know one of the best places you will ever be in life is at the very end of yourself. When you get to the point of realizing, I can do nothing. A man with a lethal diagnosis has only one question. Can I be saved? And Peter answers, yes. If you repent and believe. Technically, the way he says it is repent and be baptized. I want to say a little bit about each. I'm trying to keep this from becoming the longest sermon you've ever heard. Please note that though this is Peter's first sermon, at the end he makes clear that there are many other words that he continued to say after it. This does not record here in Acts 2 all of Peter's first sermon, uh, only a portion of it. Even the text tells us that. But Peter leads with repentance. And this is a great word. This is an unused word. In fact, I would even argue a, a slightly retreating word in the vocabulary of many preachers and pulpits. Repentance is the first work of the Spirit in our hearts. It's interesting that in Mark chapter 1, the first command regarding the kingdom is repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. It is all over the book of Acts. It is all over the New Testament. It is all over the Gospels. And it's because, again, repentance is the first work of the Spirit in our hearts. It is, if you will, the beginning of conversion in many ways. It is the twin sister of faith. Like two sides of a coin, the two are distinct but inseparable. Where you have genuine faith, you have genuine repentance. And where you have genuine repentance, you have genuine faith. It is so important that our own confession, chapter 15 says, Repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. The doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel, as well as that of faith in Christ. We should hear the word more. I should say the word more. Second paragraph, by it a sinner out of the sight and sense not only the danger, but also the filthiness and odiousness of his sins as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sins as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his 
commandments. Repentance is a beautiful thing. And when these men are cut to the heart and say, what can we do now? Peter says, repent. It's knocking at the door of the kingdom. They must repent. And their repentance is to be accompanied by baptism. So a few words here. Baptism, be very careful here, is not a sign of their faith. In fact, Scripture never calls baptism that. It is not a sign of their faith, but a sign and seal of what God has done. Baptism is not about our promise to God. Baptism is about God's promise to us. And this is why, beloved, Jesus was baptized how many times? Twice. I tricked you. He was baptized once in Matthew 3. And then he says again at the end of his ministry that I have another baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is fulfilled. And to what does he refer but to his death and being buried? There the reality comes to fruition. The sign was in Matthew 3. The reality comes at the cross. Those who repented and believed that day were baptized, verse 41 tells us, and received the promise. What promise? And because I know you're wondering, I'm going to speak uh, at least briefly, what about their children? Because I know you're wondering about that, perhaps, and the languages in the text. But let's say uh, just a little bit more here uh, about the promise. The promise in view is that of the Holy Spirit. This is what was promised in Acts chapter 1 by Jesus, the gift of the Spirit. It was the promise that Joel prophesied about in Joel chapter 2. In verse 38 here in our chapter, it is the gift. In verse 39, it is the promise. The promise that is in reference is the Holy Spirit. And the language of promise draws from the soil of the Old Testament. For here Peter quotes one more text that is rarely given the credit it deserves. The reference to Joel and to David are very clear. But if you look at verse 39, Peter is actually quoting from Genesis 17, 11. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It is important to note who all Peter has in view here as he's preaching his first sermon in Acts 2, and he draws from the soil of Genesis 17. The promise of the Spirit is to the Jew and the Gentile. The promise of the Spirit is for men and for women. But it is a promise that, is, that does not, be with me here, exclude our children, but rather includes them. This is the point of Genesis 17, 11. When God said to Abraham, I will make you a father of many nations, he became a God to Abraham and to Abraham's children as well. This was the very epicenter of the covenant of grace. And in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, the circle of God's grace does not shrink and kick children out. It expands and it draws Gentiles in. So let me make a very quick and perhaps unconvincing argument from silence. An argument from silence that should be noted here on Acts 2.39. Who is Peter speaking to? Jewish men who have come to Peter accusing them of being drunk, who have now come to the point after Peter's sermon of being brought to a place of repentance. And these are Jewish men quite familiar with the ways of the covenant and the Old Testament. And I want to make a simple point, but it's an important one. 
If covenant children are no longer included from this point forward in the covenant of grace, when parents repent and believe and are baptized and their children are now no longer to be included, which is entirely possible if it's the plan of God, it would be the biggest splash in the book of Acts. That was a pun. It was a water thing if you didn't get it. Don't be too distracted by it. But it would be the biggest splash in the New Testament. What do we mean by that? It would be a huge issue to the Jews. Which do you think they would care more about? Does God want us to circumcise the Gentiles? Or does God now, for the first time in history, no longer regard our children as in the covenant? And if this is the change, if that is the change that takes place from the old covenant to the new, this is exactly where it would happen on Peter's preaching on this day of Pentecost. This would be the moment in history, the fork in the road where that change would happen. But think for a moment again, beloved, about the relationship between the New Testament and the old. Can God change things from the, new, from the old to the new? Of course. But when God makes changes, he makes those changes clear. Peter's quotation from Genesis 17, 11, does not clearly kick kids out. It clearly brings Gentiles in. That's the point. It's Pentecost. Gentiles, foreign languages, are now hearing the mighty works of God. The point of Acts chapter 2 is not who's out. The point of Acts chapter 2 is look who God is bringing in. So change from the Old Testament to the New is always explicit and never Assumed Continuity is assumed unless discontinuity is clearly explained. This is what we do with all of the Bible, and we should do it here. But what is the thing that is unambiguously clear, again, from Peter's sermon? That should be clear in every sermon. What Peter makes perfectly clear in this sermon is the gospel. The gospel. Jesus of Nazareth. The Son of God, David's Lord, and David's Messiah came into history, embodied, incarnate, the perfect Lamb of God. And yet, though he was flawless and did mighty works and was attested by God, he was crucified, he died, and he rose again. Although he was buried, he has not been confined. Psalm 16 has been fulfilled And being raised from the dead, he ascended up into heaven. It's not enough to simply say that he is alive. In his ascension up, he sends a great gift down. And that gift is the Holy Spirit that fulfills the promise of Joel 2. That all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the pastoral point and application of Peter's sermon. In many ways, ours as well. All those, beloved, who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And it answers, we're asked a very important question. Have you been cut? Have you been cut to the heart? Have you cried out in your heart, brothers, what must I do? How can I be saved? Because the answer is the same. Repent and believe. Place all your faith In Jesus Christ, the one who alone can save us, the one who has come as the rescuing lamb, the conquering lion. And if you have, by God's grace, repented and believed and been baptized, 
There is further application even for us as the people of God. And I want to ask this question as we now in the book of Acts engage the first of 15 sermons. Do you believe in the power of preaching? I did not say, do you believe in the power of your preacher? He has none. He's quite aware. But do you believe in the power of preaching, in the power of the word of God, power to cut hearts, power to change lives, power to heal that which is broken, power to save? Do you know that God believes in preaching? And the first thing that the ascended Lord Jesus did when he sent the Holy Spirit, say it differently, the Son and the Spirit together, sent preachers. What was the first thing Peter did when he received the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon him from heaven? He began to preach. R.C. Sproul in his little commentary on Acts has his own little for Martin Luther King Jr. moment in a particular paragraph that really caught my attention when he said, this is my dream. I'm going to leave it there. What do you think he, what's his dream? This is my dream. Very personal, almost final, climactic. This is my dream. A laity empowered by God one that is not satisfied by simply hiring professionals to do the work of the ministry, but will come when their neighbor is in need and pray as priests for their dear friends, a people who are zealous for the work of the Lord, a people who are zealous for the word of God. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not simply that that gift was given on the day of Pentecost, but that you continue to give your spirit to your church. That the spirit continues to work through obviously frail and weak men who nonetheless proclaim a bold and powerful gospel. Peter went from a cowering lamb to a proclaiming lion, and it was the work of the spirit within his hearts that affected this change. We ask, O oh Lord, that the spirit work in our hearts. Some in this room are called to preach, and they will. And might they preach with the boldness of Peter, bringing light and heat to the people of God. And others, O Lord, are not called to preach, and nonetheless the Spirit of God is in them. And it was a beautiful dream to imagine the people of God so invigorated by the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we would have regard for our neighbors around us, that we would be a praying people that even have a desire to see the name of Jesus and his gospel widely proclaimed and that we would have a great zeal, not simply for the work of the Lord as we are called to it, wherever that may be, but for the word of the Lord as well. And so we ask, O oh Lord, that you would give us a great confidence and a high regard for preaching. And as Herman Melville said, help us to recognize the pulpit really does lead and transform the world, not by the power of men, but by the power of the resurrected Son of God who sent the Spirit of God. And so we thank you, Lord, again, for the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.